0: Let's pray that God would help us as we think about today's passage. Our dear Heavenly Father, we do pray as we so often do, that you will give us clear minds and open hearts to believe what we need to believe, to trust what we need to trust, to keep doing where we need to keep doing things and to change what we need to change for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years back I read a piece by the Australian Christian blogger or writer Stephen McAlpine which suggested that uh, we've moved in the West from living in Jerusalem to living in Athens, and now we live in Babylon. The idea is that in the old days we used to live in Jerusalem, uh, that is Christendom, when Christianity was the dominant and approved belief, probably up until, let's say, the 1950s. And then we moved into Athens. Uh, that was where Christianity was one of many beliefs in a marketplace of ideas. And so I went to school and university in the 70s and 80s, and I think Athens probably described the sort of world in which I was living at the time. Then, uh, more recently, uh, he suggests that now we live in Babylon. Uh, That is a world in which Christianity is increasingly disapproved of, marginalised, and by some people even despised. Now, whereas the level of opposition to Christianity in Australia is pretty small compared to that which is found in uh, various other countries around the world, it is increasingly apparent that Christian beliefs are becoming more at odds with generally general views of society. Now I was away on holidays for two weeks uh, and I missed most of this when I came back I heard about the former NAB CEO Andrew Thorburn who I'm sure you all know about who was appointed as the CEO of the Essendon Football Club and then about a week I think a day or two later uh, he was pretty much forced to uh, resign. Now the reason he was forced to resign was he was also chairman of an Anglican church in Melbourne uh, known as City on a Hill. And the church, it was discovered, as people trawled through old sermons and things like that, taught that uh, the practice of homosexuality was wrong, not the orientation, but the, the practice, uh, and that the practice of abortion was, was wrong. Now I'm not sure whether they, that they would have said in every instance or just most. And it did seem from my reading that there was a 2013 sermon at the church which probably did some, use some fairly uncircumspect. Uh, comparisons when preaching on the topic, but basically, um, Thorburn was CEO of a church which held to fairly orthodox Christian teaching, which would be agreed by most orthodox Christian teaching churches around Australia. Now there was quite a response, Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews uh, got into the act and described these views on homosexuality and abortion as being absolutely appalling. That kind of intolerance, that kind of hatred, bigotry, it's just wrong, there's the Premier. The Essendon Football Club said the church's values uh, were in direct contradiction to its own values, the values of the football club. The president said Essendon is committed to providing an inclusive, diverse, diverse and safe club where everyone is welcome and respected. Now the irony of those comments seemed to be lost on the speaker. The club wants to be inclusive, welcoming and respectful of all, but it seems that that all doesn't include those holding orthodox Christian beliefs or probably orthodox Muslim beliefs or a whole lot of other beliefs. Highly selective and as you would probably know there was a lot of kickback, people uh, weighed into the debate including the former Australian Prime Minister John Howard who strongly criticised the treatment of Mr Thorburn saying it had been preposterous and against the spirit of the country. Now I agree with Mr Howard that it was preposterous in that it seemed to be very intolerant and non-inclusive itself. Uh, as I just suggested but sadly I don't know whether it's against the modern spirit of the country because it seems to me that elements of our society are becoming increasingly intolerant uh, of and non-inclusive when it comes to differences of various sorts it's okay to have some differences but not others it seems the point is uh, I think this is just a sign that we're slowly and increasingly not like other countries but we're sort of increasingly living in Babylon Now, when Stephen McAlpine in his article said that we're living in Babylon, he was, in course, referencing the ancient Babylonian empire uh, of around about the 6th century BC, the empire in which people such as Daniel in today's reading and his friends were exiled. And living in Babylon for Daniel meant living in a cultural context where there were views around which were very different to his own views. And so as we look at Daniel and his friends living in this cultural context of Babylon and how they dealt with it, what they learnt about God and how they acted themselves, there should be quite a few uh, lessons for us, as we're not in the real Babylon, but we're increasingly in a Babylonian context. So uh, today, as you've worked out, is the first week of our Term 4 series in the book of Daniel, which we're going to be going through week by week. I've entitled today's sermon, Living in Babylon. Hopefully you've picked the outline up on the way in. And firstly, I want to think about living in Babylon, God is still in control, focusing on verses 1 to 7 and then verses 8 to 14 we're going to think about drawing the line and then finally and very briefly uh, verses 15 to 21 God blesses his people so let's start by thinking about living in Babylon God is still in control especially the first seven verses I wonder what your worst nightmare is well it's very different for different people some people might think having to read Shakespeare is their worst nightmare for some it's public speaking is their worst nightmare To some, being trapped in a lift, listening to, let's say, classical music or rock music, depending on which version you don't particularly like, that would be a nightmare. But more seriously, if we were to think about what our real nightmares were, uh, it would probably involve things along the following lines. Uh, Warfare, uh, the death of loved ones, uh, separation from family and friends, uh, isolation, uh, mental health issues, uh, being horribly assaulted, becoming a slave... Um, those sorts of things would possibly feature. Now, for people like Daniel in the 6th century BC, as one of the people of Israel in Judah, defeat by and deportation to Babylon would have been one of his worst nightmares. It incorporated some of the things I've just described that might find their way into some of our nightmares and some other things as well. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. Now it's about 605 BC, and we soon learn that as Jerusalem is is defeated, some of the cream of uh, Jewish society are deported off to Babylon. But not only are people taken to Babylon... We read in verse 2 that some of the articles of the great temple in Jerusalem were carried off and put in the treasure house of Nebuchadnezzar's God in Babylonia. Now, by way of background, apparently it was a practice in the ancient Near East that if a country invaded another country and defeated them, they'd probably go to the defeated country's temple of their God, take the idol representing that God out of it, and carry it back to their own country, where it would be placed in the temple of their own god i can only assume in some sort of subservient position showing who was the more powerful god now of course if you break into the jerusalem temple there was no idol of god there because jewish people didn't have idols of the true god so i think nebuchadnezzar probably just had to be satisfied by taking some of the articles of, that were in the temple and taking them back to babylon in any case it must have been a shattering experience for the people of israel they might have asked various questions how could God possibly have allowed that? Maybe God isn't as strong as Babylon or the gods of Babylon. Does God care? Is God even there? Uh, it would have been a nightmare scenario of questions for them as well as everything else. Now, the story in Daniel 1 then uh, focuses in on four of those exiles who were taken off to Babylon. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. And possibly they were young men. They may have just been teenagers, uh, maybe in their early 20s, young, young guys. And we learn that in Babylon they're placed under incredible pressure. Now, as you would have heard in the reading, Nebuchadnezzar had ordered that some of the best of the exiles, best, some of the best of the young men, were to be trained and in the language and literature of the Babylonians and they were to receive uh, food and wine from the king's table. And the idea was that they would eventually, at the completion of their education, go into service of the king of Babylon. Now, being trained in Babylonian literature would have included being trained in various texts which described myths uh, describing the deeds of false gods, texts about divination, texts about astrology, and texts about dream interpretation. Many of these texts would have been quite at odds with the beliefs of these um, Jewish people and uh, perhaps even repugnant to them. So, the idea is that they're going to get re educated, reprogrammed, some might say indoctrinated. But not only that, they're also to be renamed, as verses 6 and 7 describe. So, Daniel, whose name means God is my judge, was to become Belteshazzar, which means the Divine Lady protects the King. Uh, Hananiah, which means the Lord has been gracious, and Mishael, which means who is what God is, would become Shadrach and Meshach, which may refer to the Babylonian god Marduk. And then Azariah, which means the Lord is my help, was to become Abednego, which may be a jumbled form of servant of Nabu. In a nutshell, it seems they're going going from having names which honour the true God to having names which honour false gods. So it seems. Now, uh, the strategy of Nebuchadnezzar seems to be... Quite ingenious. He's taking the cream of the future of Jewish society, and he uh, the possible future leaders of Jewish society, the people who might have led a rebellion against Babylonian rule, and he's going to isolate them, re-educate them, and give them incredible incentive to assimilate into Babylonian culture, where they could even become important, powerful people. For a young person, a young man. In this situation, you can see that would be quite a temptation. Perhaps a massively diluted comparison might be someone who finishes school or university and is offered their dream job, in a, the ideal, the, the dream legal firm or the dream school or the dream hospital or the dream whatever. But the culture of that hospital or school or, 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 or legal firm or whatever is such that It's pretty much going to monopolize your whole life, there won't be much time for the Christian faith but if you want to play with the big boys you've got to get in the game but look at the rewards there are available. I mean that is often a temptation for people starting out in their careers, this would have been like that but on steroids I would suggest. Well there's the situation but one thing the passage does make clear is that things are not outside of God's control here, things are still very much within God's control. Look at verse 2. It says, The Lord, that's the true God, delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now, it may have seemed like Nebuchadnezzar's army had come down and defeated Judah, but that was only because God had allowed it as part of his judgment on the people of Judah for centuries of having rejected him. Looked like Nebuchadnezzar was in charge, but really, God was in charge. Later in the passage in verse 9, we learn that it was God who caused a particular Babylonian official to view Daniel favourably. God was in charge of that. And then in verse 17, later in the passage, we read that to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding. God is acting in their life. God is acting internationally in the lives of people who aren't God's people and the lives of people who are God's people. You see, even in this nightmare scenario God is still sovereign and God is still in control. Now, our, our country has not been overthrown into some sort of nightmare scenario not like that. We haven't been invad- invaded by, say, Russia. We haven't been cut off to Moscow. We aren't being indoctrinated with communism. We haven't been re- renamed Alexei and Olga or whatever and we aren't being trained up to serve Vladimir Putin. But we do face situations in our lives at times which are dark, sometimes very, very dark, and sometimes we find ourselves in a situation which we can only describe as an absolute and utter nightmare. I don't know what those things may have been or may be for you, De- death, illness, mental illness, prince- you know, imprisonment, bullying, isolation, whatever. But I guess the question which this passage will ask of us is, will we trust God in the darkness? Will we trust God when we descend into a nightmare scenario now it's easy to say oh yes of course I would until we find ourselves at the bottom of some horrible pit now it seems to me um, over the years that uh, nightmare dark pit type scenarios can either drive people away from God or drive people towards God obviously that second is the better version now uh You've often heard me talk about The Hiding Place and Corrie ten Boom, but uh, in the holidays, I finally found myself in a situation where I could show my children the movie version of The Hiding Place, which I think, I don't know what they really thought, but I think they found it surprising and somewhat confronting. Uh, as you would know, it's about Corrie ten Boom, as you may know, it's about Corrie ten Boom and her sister, two middle-aged Dutch women, Second World War, they're Christians, but they're helping hide Jewish people from the Nazis and getting them out of the country. They're eventually betrayed and end up in a concentration camp called Ravensbrook. And uh, the, the movie shows quite well what the book describes and what we would know from history is that the conditions there were horrendously brutal and depraved. Now, that is clearly a nightmare scenario. And in the movies, you watch it, you can feel the two sisters, you know, grappling with, am I going to trust that God is with me and sovereign even here? And it seems that one of the sisters in particular goes through quite a struggle but God strengthens them and they do trust God and uh, in the movie um, you see that they learn some great things about God and do some great ministry uh, in that concentration camp. Now, near, in the movie, near the end of the movie, when uh, Corrie's sister is about to die and she's very near death, uh, she speaks to Corrie in the following words and the sister says to Cory, pretty much on her deathbed, um, we must go everywhere We must tell people that no pit is so deep that he, that is God, is not deeper still. And they will believe us because we were here. Telling others that no matter how bad the nightmare is, God is still there with you. And we're not speaking from some detached ivory tower. We're speaking from people who've been in the depths of a Nazi concentration camp. I'll believe this because we've, <laughs> we've been there. Uh, it was quite a powerful example of people, I guess, trusting in this sort of idea. Uh, most poignant, and I think Wendy referred to this in her prayers, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, night before his uh, crucifixion, the night before his sin-bearing, God's wrath-absorbing death, as well as the excruciating physical pain he was about to face, sweating like drops of blood. That would have been his Nightmare scenario, is he going to trust God? Well, he said he prays, of course, not my will, but yours be done. Uh, Jesus, in his nightmare, he trusts God's sovereignty, God the Father's sovereignty as well and stands firm. So I think um, if this is relevant for us now or for when it is next relevant for us, we need to pray that we would look to God in the darkness, in the nightmare, in the horror, and trust him in that situation. So moving on to the second section, um, drawing the line, verses 8 to 14. You see, Daniel and his friends in this situation had to decide what it meant to be God's people in Babylon. What could they do? What would they do? What must they not do? Now, when people find themselves in a situation where they and their worldview differs strongly to the, the worldview of the cultural context in which they live, there are a few options of how we might respond. We might retreat from the world, go into our own little ghetto, the path of avoidance. We might embrace the world and become just like it so that we're no different. That's the path of compromise or assimilation. Or we can seek to be in the world but not of the world, which is of course the approach that Daniel and his friends seek to uh, enact here. It seems they were prepared to accept some things about living in Babylon but not Others. We've seen already that they were prepared to accept being educated in Babylonian thinking. They were prepared to accept being renamed with Babylonian names. Now, this is not insignificant, and I thought I'd just reflect on the education bit for a moment. Remember, aspects of the Babylonian curriculum for these young men would have been quite at odds with their beliefs. They would have been taught about Babylonian gods and astrology and divination and all this sort of stuff, stuff which was quite repugnant to them as Jewish people but uh, they studied it and as we see later they got very good at understanding it but presumably without it undermining their faith. Now I think that's an interesting point and I'm going to be making this point a bit more strongly tonight at night church but uh, at school and at university or in our first jobs or just in the general marketplace of ideas, we're continually confronted sometimes quite persuasively with worldviews which differ partially to ours or significantly to ours. Uh, Atheism, Marxism, versions of feminism, humanism, relativism, Disneyism even, for goodness sake. Now, we don't necessarily need to avoid those worldviews. In fact, it can be very helpful to understand those worldviews very well and we might even learn some helpful truths from those worldviews too. But we should take care that the worldviews, as we become in the world, we're not of the world. Now, uh, one thing I would strongly advise people going into their first jobs or university is that, uh, and it would apply to us as well, it's so helpful to know what we believe as Christians, you know, basic doctrine, the gospel, truths about God, that sort of thing, and why we believe it, why we believe Christianity is right, because we're going to come in contact with lots of other beliefs which are different, why don't we believe them? When I was at uh, senior high school, I fortunately um, was encouraged to look into those things, so that when I got to university, I could then encounter Marxism and all the other isms and think, oh, they're making some good points here, but I don't agree with that, so I'll, I'll, I won't take on board that, but I will take on board that stuff and the reason I'm not going to take on board that is because I'm a Christian and I think that's right for these reasons. I knew what I believed and why I believed it. I think that's what Daniel and his friends must have been like. They knew what they believed as, as followers of the true God and so they could still then educate and become quite knowledgeable in, in the literature of the Babylonians without it affecting their faith. Now, so Daniel and his follow- and his colleagues uh, accepted the education and accepted the name changes, but they draw the line at food. Verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, the chief official doesn't actually give him permission, but one of the guards who was supervising them Um, agrees to an arrangement whereby Daniel and his friends would just have vegetables and water for 10 days and and see how they went. So uh, that's what they decide to do. The question is, what was wrong with eating the food? Why was this the line-drawing thing? Well, various suggestions have been made. Some people have thought, is it because the food was offered to idols and they thought they shouldn't eat food offered to idols? Well, the suggestion is probably not that because the vegetables they ate were probably offered to the idols as well, it's thought. Uh, Perhaps it was because the food was unclean against Jewish food laws. Well, maybe, but then wine wasn't against Jewish food laws. Why weren't they having the wine? Was it because eating the king's food entailed some sort of reliance on an obligation to the king? Maybe, maybe not. From my reading, I've worked out no one really knows what the real concern about the food was. But we do know that in Daniel's mind, and he probably had good reason for it, and if we were there, we'd probably understand a lot better than we do here today, two and a half thousand years later, he felt that eating the food would mean defiling himself. So he draws the line and says, thus far, but no further. Now, I guess a good question is, in our current Babylonian context, where do we draw the line? What do we say no to? As we move in contexts which often don't particularly honour God, uh, whether it be at school or the sports club or down at the the, the retirement village or family situations or whatever, when we face temptations to, um, I guess, dishonour God or deprioritise God, what will we not do? Where will we say thus far but no further? Now, with, with younger people, there are the tempting dangers of alcohol and drugs and becoming committed to, you know, accumulation of money and, bad relationships and immorality and online addiction where are they going to draw the line now when I was young uh, many of my friends drank a lot of alcohol and they were my friends so I liked them and they weren't Christians most of them weren't at the time um, and so I wanted to be a Christian example to them but then I found myself moving around in this fairly boozy culture uh, a fair bit of the time so I resolved to draw a line and as a teenager I said I'm not going to have any more than two alcoholic drinks in, in an evening and I'm just going to have one drink two drinks, so I was still part of the context, stop there and I've pretty much stuck to that since. I'm not saying you have to do that, that's just the line I drew um, and I've, I found that helpful. Often when people are older, uh, it can be the danger of getting so wrapped up in our families that we have no time for God and church or getting so wrapped up in our career that we have no time uh, for, for God or church. I heard the story during the week of a successful Christian businessman who decided the line he was going to draw, was Tuesday nights, Tuesday nights was the night where he and his church um, had their Bible study or fellowship meeting or something like that and he said I am whatever happens I'm going to draw the line at Tuesday nights, if a job ever forces me to work on Tuesday night I'll resign, I will leave the job and he said over the years he stuck to it and um, it's been hard at times but that's what he has done and he said it's done his spiritual life the world of good where are you going to draw, the line? is there some line you need to draw? Thirdly, and very briefly, uh, living in Babylon, God still blesses his people, verses 15 to 21. How did Daniel and his friends go with their stand on food? Well, you know that after 10 days, they were still as good as any of the other young men, and so they continued with that. They looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So it seems that God honoured their decision there. Furthermore, uh, God made his faithful followers not only healthy, but also wise. In verse 20, we read that in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and charters in his whole kingdom. So God blessed Daniel and his friends. Does that mean that God will bless, if we're faithful Christians, will God bless us with incredible health and incredible intellect or, or other ways? Well, my answer is yes and no. Uh, we've often talked about biblical theology in this church, which says that if if we're followers of Jesus now, God will bless us in many ways in part now in this life, but in full in future in the next. So as Christians, we're blessed now by having a restored relationship with God, being adopted into his family, having fellowship with other Christians, having access to wisdom, power, peace, purpose in life, right? But at the same time, we still suffer, we still get sick, we still face persecution, we still get bullied, we still feel isolated at times, etc., etc. Blessings and the challenges are both there together. But we know that in the future, God will wipe away every um, sickness, death will be no more, we'll wipe away every tear, etc. All that stuff will be gone, ultimately blessed then. Now, those truths. Oh, that's great! i finished Sunday school and I've almost finished my sermon. Um, Good. (laughs) I'd like to hear more. Um, Look, these thoughts about uh, blessings now in part in in the future are great encouragements, particularly for Christians in persecuted countries, particularly for Christians as they get older and particularly for Christians if they're really in touch with what the Bible is saying. So I guess the point is, does this promise of blessings in part now and fully in the future, is that an encouragement to us, particularly when we might be in Babylonian nightmare situations. I'll conclude. In this life, we may face nightmare, darkness scenarios uh, at times. The question is, when we do, will we take on board the truths of this passage? Will we trust God in the darkness? I mean, will we? And will we obey God in difficult situations by drawing the line? trust and obey so my big idea is trust and obey in babylon let me pray our dear heavenly father we pray that we would trust you in the darkness and obey you by drawing the line where we need to we do pray that we would understand how that impacts us on our lives in jesus name we ask this amen